0: All right, Pat, it's good to have you on the show. Um, Do you want to give a quick little intro of who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, Derek, thanks for having me on today. Uh, My name is Patrick Reagan. I'm from Savannah, Georgia. I'm a professional ultra runner for uh, Hoka and Goo. And uh, yeah, I've been coaching athletes of all levels uh, within the ultra running community for, I guess, seven, eight years now um, and coaching professionally, whether it was at the collegiate level or with my coaching business for 10 years now.
0: Cool. What's the name of your coaching business?
1: Yeah, it's just Patrick Reagan running LLC. Nice and simple.
0: Nice and simple. I like that. (laughs) Very practical. (laughs) Um, So the reason you're on today is like, I guess, first of all, you live in Georgia, it's the south, it's warm and everything. Um, So we're going to talk about heat, like down here in Arizona, it's finally getting warm again. I feel like we've had an extended winter where it's snow and cold and then kind of warm and then back to snow and cold. And we even had snow down here in Tucson like a couple days ago, which is pretty wild
1: yeah. Very different temperatures and a very different experience this winter. Cold for us was like, Ooh, it's creeping into the the high thirties. You know, we better throw a space heater on for, for the evening. Right. <laughs> but for the most part, I mean, we, we have extremely warm temperatures year round, I would say with the exception of December, January, and partway through February, but even this February here, we've hit 80 degrees. Is it wild or what? I mean, that's crazy temperatures, right? Yeah, it's pretty
0: nuts especially when like all these people are getting so much snow too like i think the south from the grand canyon like in front of flagstaffs like double the normal snowpack uh, the sierra rockies everywhere is buried in snow it's pretty wild
1: yeah whereas the southeast you know the w- one thing derek that i've loved about living as an athlete here and training here um, is just the availability of um, hard pack ground all year round and The the one thing that's a little tough here, living as someone that's at one time or another concentrated on trail racing in particular, um, is we don't have many trails, right? There are only a few. So it's a little give and take there. I don't have a ton of elevation gain and I also don't have a ton of access to trails without driving, but it's great to run out your door every day and not have to throw on an apparatus like a snowshoe or a ski. So I do enjoy that as a bit more of like a running purist. Yeah,
0: honestly, like, it's one of the things I like about running when it's warm out. Like, I know everyone can be like, oh, it's warm, it's nice. But even when it's, like, stupid hot, like, I'd much rather do that because it's, like, it's so simple. You don't have to put on all this gear. Your laundry's a lot less. It's just kind of, like, take a bottle or two and go for a run. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah. So let's talk about, about heat, heat training, heat adaption, all these different things. because I feel like we have a lot to talk about. I find it really fascinating. Like I was saying, you live in Tucson. You live in in Georgia. It's hot. It's warm. Um, so let's talk about how your body temperature can affect your performance. Like, does that lead to cramps and like slower speeds or is it kind of like an RPE type thing or how does that work?
1: Yeah. So I think there's a lot of ways for us to discuss this, but essentially what we're looking at, right. Is I like to describe it as a triad relationship when we are actually running and the triad being the ability of your body to send fuel to the stomach and to working muscle, Um, the ability of your body to send energy to working muscle, (laughs) right. And the ability of your body to cool itself. And you can do essentially like two of the three of those really well. And if you add topical cooling, you can do the other two even better. Right. So that triad relationship for me is something that I've used personally in my racing, especially in hot weather races, when it comes to, Hey, I'd really like to stay with this group, or I I've heard there are runners, you know, um, you know, five minutes up and I'd really like to push it here. I will use an external stimulus, much like you would a radiator with a car, right. With external topical cooling in order to, like you said, keep the core body temperature down. Right. So the, the key for me is to make sure that the core body temperature remains low enough via the topical cooling and the lowering of that perceived exertion to make sure that you essentially don't go over that red line that we're talking about. Right. Um, when we go over that red line in one of those three categories, right, we have a problem in the other. So if the core body temperature goes too high, goes through the roof, we're not paying attention enough to stopping at aid stations, and actually doing the co- topical cooling or venous cooling activities that like we need to be doing from a thermoregulation regulation standpoint, then something else fails, right? Either <laughs> cramping, The ability, the inability to keep moving at the same pace that you want to move at or not being able to continue to process fuel, which then affects the entire triad, right? So (laughs) it's a complicated question because there are really three avenues that are functioning there simultaneously. And the balance is really tricky throughout a day that could last anywhere between 15 and 24 hours, whether we're talking about Western states or UTMB for elite level men or... 17 to 26, 27 hours for elite level women, right?
0: Yeah. So then does everybody's body function differently in, um, in heat then? Do you know anything about those variables that would affect that like genetically or anything?
1: Well, like we talked about, I, I mean, I'm not a doctorate level exercise yeah. physiologist, right? But what I would say is I think you can you can make changes over time in terms of from a blood plasma perspective. The, do like both from short term and long term heat exposure in order to impact the day that you would have in a hot weather race so i like i have some heat training protocols that i work with for different athletes living in different areas so like let's say you wanted to run an event like keys 100 in may but you felt like it wasn't going to get quite warm enough in like the tucson region or or let's say even better you were living up in flagstaff and you're like man the, the weather's not going to break until really early May. And I wanted to be doing some more long range heat training for an event like Keys 100. The long range heat training is easier for someone like me, right, Derek? And what I mean is like exposure on a regular basis for say a three to six month period of time approaching a hot weather race. I can do that, right? Because I live in Savannah, Georgia, I can expose myself to the afternoon heat in January and it may be 75 or 80 degrees, I'm not going to have any problem preparing for an event like Western States from a from a heat training perspective in the long range, but let's say your your situation, you want to do more of a, a short training, short range like heat training protocol. That would be more like a 21 days out to one month out period of time where you would do exposure via like hot tub after a run or sauna after a run two to three days a week. You can have a you can have a really positive blood plasma um, effect there. Just from regular exposure, 20 minutes, three days a week that will get you ready for like the type of conditions you're going to see on race day. And, and to me, it's like similar to strides, right? We talk about like working on running efficiency and economy when you're tired, right? The, the point of doing strides on a regular basis, you run efficiently while you run fast, while you run tired, right? It's not about speed really. At least that's like the Jack Daniels um, approach, right? The the physiologist Jack Daniels, magnets coach. It's it's really about working on the form and the running economy. The same goes for the heat training. You want to do it while you're tired, while you're already kind of compromised, because that's the state you're going to be in in a hot weather race, right?
0: Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, uh, I guess just because like when I go to the gym, it's like I don't want to get all like nasty and then go lift, so I'll just do like the sauna afterwards or something. And I've definitely seen a lot of benefits, especially like leading into the spring and summer where it gets really hot down here. And it's like, you just kind of adapt faster to like a hot run or something. And by hot, I mean like over a hundred degrees because to me that kind of just seems normal to run in those temperatures. And yeah, it's pretty brutal, but like your body adapts to it fairly quickly. So it's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, you do adapt to it fairly, fairly quickly. And like, personally, I'm a big fan of the more long range approach. Like I think the... Short range approach is more practical for most people. And it's also probably more popular among most coaches, but if we have access to it, right? Like if me or my training partner, Kaylee Demersian, right. She lives three blocks away. Um, You know, she's a highly accomplished runner at events like Havilena and uh, Brazos Bend in hot weather conditions. And me and Kaylee have access to it all the time. So why wouldn't we just keep ourselves used to the heat on a very regular basis And the more we get into the summer, sure, like you talked about the the perceived exertion dips, right? So we also get used to running at the proper running efficiency and economy from like a steps per minute standpoint in the hot weather conditions. And we know how to, even though we may be in her 246 marathon shape or me 228 marathon shape, we also know how to run with good running efficiency and economy at 830 to 930 pace because we're forced to, from a perceived exertion perspective for like recovery days or, um, you know, ups and cool downs in order to keep the, the heart rate from going super high. So I like the long range heat training from just a practical standpoint for people that are in hot weather conditions on a regular basis to just expose yourself on a semi-regular basis. So we can talk about timing of all that <laughs> whenever you'd like somewhere in the cast, but it's also important to not just do it every day, right? Like I, I don't think there's value in doing heat training every single day either because you can tire yourself out for the, the sessions that are really quite important to your development as an athlete as well.
0: Yeah. I've noticed that specifically, like if I go do a hot weather run and then go to the sauna the same day, it's like, I'm already depleted from this run that was like one or two hours out in the sun. And then I go and like bake in the sauna for another 30 minutes. Like that amount of fluid and electrolyte loss is
1: huge. Oh it's massive right? I mean if we if we improperly time when we do our heat training right? Let's say for example we go do we have two quality sessions per week right? Let's say in the middle of the week we do kind of a marathon pace tempo or um you know mid-range interval kind of session where we're we're doing about 6 to 8 miles or somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour of work essentially like our marathon effort right? And then let's say on Friday, we have another important quality session. Maybe it's a cut down style run or a fartlek style run. And then maybe on Sunday, we have our most important session of the week, which is like our big long run of the week, right? We don't want to do necessarily the heat training on the same day. We also don't want to do it the day before. We also don't want to necessarily do it on our recovery day. When do we do it, right? And I think that takes a lot of experimentation as an athlete. What days of the week do you actually time yourself, um, to you know what when do you allot that time to do those two or three sessions a week that will actually have a a positive blood plasma effect on you so that your race goes as smoothly as possible i guess that's
0: the benefit of having a coach that knows a little bit about this right because i think most people would kind of just be like oh hey like it's gonna fit my schedule at this time so i'll just do it and it's like maybe the idea is like doing it is better than not doing it but maybe it's not optimal for your as far as performance and your workouts go and stuff right
1: Yeah, sure. And and really, it's a matter of like, what is your capacity for work, right? Because essentially, like the heat train, heat training is work, right? We're putting in extra time where, like you said, we're depleting electrolytes, we're depleting our energy stores, maybe you're the type of athlete that can go do a two hour hard session, knock that heat training out the next the next day. You can do that four to six miles of like light jogging or hiking, right? (laughs) Where you're actually having a proper recovery day. Maybe you just do a a little bit of light core that day and a recovery run on say Thursday when you had a hard session plus heat training on Wednesday. So it's a matter of just making sure you don't string work upon work upon work because all the, all the heat training work could have a negative impact on your race day. If you get to the line and you're just absolutely depleted.
0: Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. So, like, so I guess from what we've talked about so far, it's like, yeah, like overheating is bad. It can lead to cramps, digestive issues, poor performance, just poor recovery in general, and everything. Right. So, then you had mentioned venous cooling and topical cooling. And I think anybody that's looked at anything from Western states, you see people getting constantly dunked with ice, like ice bandanas, like lots of different types of cooling. Um, same thing like at Havilena or just really any hot weather race, but I think it's more apparent at States and Havilena just cause there's so much media. So like, what are your ideas about topical cooling? And yeah, let's just kind of talk about that and venous cooling. Cause you had mentioned that
1: too. Sure. Yeah. So I would say I've had the absolute best advisors from that perspective as well. Right. Early on, um, I feel like Zach Bitterhead really taught me the ropes, like heading into Havilena. At Javelina, you know, we ran a lot of my first run there in 2017 together. He was a great advisor early on. Um, And Pam Smith was a great advisor in terms of someone that, you know, kind of told me, hey, like, these are the things you need to be doing on a regular basis in order to perform the way I did at Western States when I won. And in more recent times, you know, Magda Boulay coaching me in 2019 and uh, Ian Charman, like being my like advisor, (laughs) these are the folks that if you were to look at, consistent performance due to like use of topical cooling, topical apparatuses, these would be some of the people that you would think of. So I I feel like a lot of my knowledge comes from like that hive mind of great ideas, you know, Pam Smith wearing a white t-shirt and laying in every creek, Ian Sharman, strangely wearing so much clothing. Well, why are you wearing so much clothing at Western States, right? You have white arm sleeves, you have white calf sleeves, you have white shirt, you're constantly wet you're carrying so much ice on person why right maybe magda and zach being a little bit more on the light minimal end of it though right so many different ideas are kind of what helped me craft like that that general hive mind of concepts ideas so to preface i guess like my approach in general i feel like i've had great influencers and advisors people that have that taught me about topical cooling um, and the value of thermoregulation in general and how it can enhance performance so, all that being said, um, I once again think of this as kind of a a, a do, really do a relationship here between the use of internal cooling via what is in your bottle, and the the um, the other side of it being external cooling in terms of what apparatuses do you have on person that can help you to enhance performance. The third section of that kind of being. What can I lay in (laughs) that can help me to keep my cool body, my body temperature low enough on the course that I'm about to run as well in order to enhance performance? So number one, what are you going, what are you doing as you approach an aid station, right? What do you have? Like, is your, is your setup a pack? Is your setup two handhelds? Depending on which you're going to use, um, kind of depends on your approach to that next aid station as well so i think of the pack almost as um a a two-part two-parter here right it can be topical cooling meaning you can put pantyhose filled with ice like down the spine of it and sew it into the pack right or you may work with uh someone like ultra aspire that's kind of already thought about these things right (laughs) one of my one of my sponsors ultra aspire like they they have been working to like kind of work in some of that Topical cooling into packs, right? Whether it's Jeff Browning's pack or or other others that are on the line, there are some great ways that you can store ice in the pack along some areas that are really important for thermoregulation. So, the areas that I think about when I think about where I want to topical cool are the wrist for venous cooling, the back of the neck, like from the occipital bone um, to the back of the neck, being a great spot for either uh, an ice hat, like you've seen me wear at Havoline 100, where I have like a big. I'm almost a pound of ice in the back of my hat. So compressed sport has made us like these awesome hats over the years. Um, One that they worked with, with Hoka where, where we have almost a pound of ice on the occipital bone and all that trickles down a buff and then trickles onto an ice bandana and then trickles down the spine. So these are some of your main cooling centers to where you can almost trick the body into believing it's cooler out than it is. And you're also having the impact on your core body temperature that I'm doing venous cooling which is keeping my core body temperature regulated on a a regular basis. So when I come to an aid station, I'm not thinking at all about I'm losing the group. The group is running away from me. All I'm thinking about is how empty are my bottles? What do I want in them as I'm approaching? Take the caps off the bottles. Go into the aid station. Ask a volunteer who's like graciously volunteer their time. Ice and water in this one, please. Like sports drink in this one. And I'll go and I'll start with my my topical cooling procedures. So the essentially the first thing I do when I get into an aid station is get the ice bandana full after I hand off those bottles, um, tie it back around the neck so it starts to have the impact on me, fill the back of my ice hat. So you're talking three pounds of ice on person, right? When maybe some other guys like blew through the aid station and didn't top off the bottle. I'm really just like trying to like meditate on this and take my time in the aid station. I I know I can make up ground between aid stations. What I'm concerned about is getting this ice on person in the key areas and making sure that I don't walk out of the aid station without putting some ice in my arm sleeves and like sponging down a lot. Like I want to be totally soaking wet, heading out of the aid station in an event like in 100 or Western States, right? Havilian 100, you don't have any creeks to lay in like you do at Western States. At States, I'd lay in every single creek for a minimum of 30 seconds, you know, if not up to a minute or two. Like the river, like I'd like to lay in it for two minutes, you know, I'd like to take my time, forget about those couple minutes I may lose. Don't worry about placement yet. Like get the core body temperature low. You just went through the hottest section of the course, right? So there's a lot going on here, but really we're talking about three apparatuses. We're talking about like a nice ice hat, a nice ice bandana and white arm sleeves to, you know, just enhance the cooling process as well
0: the The pack aspect is interesting because I've always hated wearing packs I just sweat so much, and honestly, I've never even thought about putting like like a some sort of cooling mechanism in a pack like, that's really interesting that ultraspire is doing that
1: yeah well and what I mean is you know they they haven't they don't necessarily have a a product on the market yet that okay. is specific to that ice storage, but there have been a couple like trial yeah. like concepts here, right where there are so many areas in the ultra aspire packs that they have the elastic bands on the top. You can store ice almost anywhere. <laughs> right. And and Magda in her her win at States, she stored it right down the spine, you know? And it it was it was perfect for her.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. Cause my like my biggest gripe with a pack is like I just feel like it makes me so much warmer and I feel really constricted wearing it. But if you use it as a tool, I guess, to to thermoregulate more efficiently and just to cool off, like that seems like a win-win right there.
1: Sure. I mean, let's say it's an event, Derek, where we have to use poles, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's going to be harder to have our, have handhelds and poles, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's going to be virtually impossible. And even if me and you are, even if we gravitate towards like belts or handhelds, a lot of folks are wearing packs. So they are quite suffocating, right? They can be quite suffocating. There's been some like really great changes into how packs work and function and how breathable they are. And and that's that's personally what I love about working with Ultra Aspire is the breathability, the hex mesh, just you know, the ability to use them for cooling, but also to not be suffocated by material. My issue with packs has always been how much material is on top of that hex mesh and those nice breathable materials you're putting on my body. Because the the cooling is it, and the evaporation rate is really, really important, right? Like being able to have enough fluid, um, cool fluid, like cool product, like ice on your person is important, but also not being suffocated by fabric that's soaking wet and the water within that fabric is getting hotter. That That's always been my particular issue with packs. And I think that like the evolutions to, to where they've become more like uh, clothing over the years has has been awesome.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Like it seems like well, not to like dog on like ultimate direction or whatever, but like their old packs were like they were super durable, but also very heavy and stiff feeling and didn't vent very well at all. And like mostly it's like modern packs, like you're saying the ultra spire ones and like the Solomon packs. They're, they're pretty lightweight material, which is super cool to see that evolution in, in pack design.
1: Yeah, and that that's kind of like I'm thinking about your listeners. Like, if most people wear packs, we need to talk about how we use packs. To not suffocate, but to actually help us with the venous cooling and the thermoregulation,
0: right? Yeah, well, let's talk about that in venous cooling because I think a lot of people do wear packs, like out in Tucson. I feel like a lot of people do, and just in ultra running in general, it's kind of a normal thing. Um, but also, like venous cooling, what exactly is it? And yeah, because like I think from what you've mentioned, it kind of makes sense. But can we go into a little more detail on that?
1: Yeah, sure. So let's let's think about. um Hey, you're, you're a bit of a tech guy, right? You think about your computer and uh, like water passing through the cooling areas within the computer, or we think about cars, right? Water passing through the radiator within the car, cooling the rest of the engine, right? Same thing. Like we're talking about, we can access certain areas on our body, right? And we can put ice on that area. Blood will pass through. Blood will get some cooling effect. Blood will pass back towards the heart and the cardiovascular system and that, that, uh, that blood will be cooler than it was when it was passing out (laughs) and passing where the, the essentially the ice was placed, um, tactically in order to get the blood to cool down. Essentially, we're trying to make sure that the, the core body temperature remains where we want it to be. The higher the core body temperature, the harder we have to work, the more energy we have to send to cooling the system as opposed to sending energy to working muscle so that we can keep moving at the pace we want to move at. Right. Or the digestive system. So we can continue to digest. So from a venous cooling perspective, I'd recommend a couple areas. Like the wrist is a great spot. Right. And this, this comes like direct from Magda Boulet. Um, we, we like to put a little bit of ice here, like just kind of golf ball size, softball size, like placed somewhere along the arm so that we have a venous cooling effect. The same goes almost for anywhere on the body where we have capillaries, right? Like we're that's essentially what we're doing with topical cooling. This is venous cooling. This is thermoregulation at its finest in the ways that we use it, (laughs) which, you know, hey, we walk out of aid stations and we look like we have a bunch of fabric strapped to us with a bunch of ice inside of it. But really it it makes a ton of sense. It's helping us to keep our core body temperature low enough through an actual topical cooling effect.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because... I don't know, like your body can dump a lot of heat via your blood, but if your whole body's warm, it's gonna be harder for it to do that. So you cooled off a little bit, you're gonna be able to to cool off better. It, it makes sense. I think Yeah.
1: Sense. And we're we're thinking about the areas where you your veins are actually the most visible. And when we think about where are they the most visible, they're the most visible in the wrist. So the more ice you can load between aid stations on a regular basis basis into a white cooling sleeve or like a sun sleeve, something of that nature on the wrist, the better. Like it's amazing the impact you can have just by dunking, you know, pulling your arm sleeves down, dunking them in a horse trough or in a stream or putting a few cubes of ice. I'm talking two or three cubes of ice. It can have a huge impact on you um, where, you know, you see a basketball player come off the court, splash their face with water, right? It feels really good. You know, you kind of cleanse the, cleanse the face. You cleanse the palate. It does sort of the same thing for us where yeah, there's a ton of value in walking up to a stream and and putting it on your face, right? You you feel that nice cooling effect. But if, if you have ice on your wrist between aid stations for almost like every bit of the stretch, you're definitely going to get a venous cooling effect there. As long as you're not running way North of like the perceived exertion, you're supposed to be running for say the hundred mile race, right? (laughs) Like we could be talking about the 50 K or the hundred mile distance. We could be talking about a 250 mile race. It doesn't matter. Like you need to in in order to have the impacts of the thermoregulation we're talking about you still need to be, to be running at the right perceived exertion that you have planned for your day right yeah that goes yeah. without saying though yeah definitely
0: definitely does like i
1: even on like grand canyon runs
0: where it's like pretty hot in the summer um i'll bring a bottle specifically just for topical cooling and so like as i'm running out instead of just drinking this bottle of plain water I'll, um, I'll slowly dump it on my face or on my forehead, I should say, like squirt a little bit. And you do, you feel that effect instantly. Like you're moving a little bit of airflow on your face or your hands or whatever. It feels really good. And I've noticed a lot of difference there coming from like a non elite level athlete. I've noticed that as well.
1: Yeah. It's amazing how just, just small activations can help you along the way to feel like you're turning the corner from I'm overheating, I need to slow the pace down. Okay, cool. Like that's step one. But what external factor can you add into the equation to help you get out of the hole that you're in? Right. Like we all go through rough patches and ultras. And I think part of getting out of those rough patches, sometimes the reason we don't get out of them is because we don't per- we don't add an external stimuli. And I think that the thermoregulation re- side of it, all this topical cooling stuff we're talking today, this is one of the easiest things to do. But you do need certain bits of material right like like i i think personally i'm known for like wearing light material but a lot of it that's just how i race right or calf sleeves i get them soaking wet for a little bit of venous cooling right i wear arm sleeves i get them soaking wet i add ice to the wrist right so that i can continue to run at you know pretty fast paces for for these distances we're talking about every little every little bit there counts i mean i I, I think about every piece of the gear, right? I think I want the shirt to be white. I don't want it to attract a lot of sun. I want the arm sleeves to be white. I want the calf sleeves to be white, right? <laughs> like and and those are kind of the requests I make with the, you know, generous sponsors that support me. Hey, I run a lot of hot weather races and I'd like to, you know, shift the color palette of the kid a little bit. I, I do get thinking about those things because I'm looking for every little edge. If this is just a piece of gear I can wear, why wouldn't I wear it? Right. I don't want to wear the black shirt just because it looks really good. (laughs) I'm thinking about the day that I'm going to have out there and how every little edge could count. And and these are things that anyone can use. Like it's, it's not, it's not just elite level athletes or people that are running hundred mile races at seven minutes a mile, 645 a mile, whatever. This is for anyone that just wants to have a really smooth hundred. Why wouldn't you look for every little edge? Yeah, I agree. And especially with cooling, like it's
0: such a cheap thing. Like I think most people have a buff. Or they're going to have some sort of like calf sleeves or arm sleeves or something like that. And even if you don't have it, like you can make that stuff for fairly cheap and you can take advantage of the cooling. It's like, why wouldn't you? Like, what's a bag of ice cost? Two dollars. Or you get it from your freezer. It's like, why wouldn't you do that? It's such a simple thing to improve your performance and have a better race, a better day. And you'll just end up like loving running more, I imagine
1: yeah absolutely and and i think practicing with these things on a regular basis to to break them in to get used to them the same that you would a pack the same that you would a new handheld like before race day is very important right like you want to go through kind of a trial and error process where you kind of get guinea pig your products like and it can be very cheap like when we're talking about ice bandanas we're talking about something that look you could get at a five and dime store right (laughs) you could literally get a, a bandana anywhere you could get a piece of uh the ShamWow cloth anywhere, you know, the high, like fiber count cloth that you would wash a car or like wax a car with. Mm-hmm. So you can sew that material triangle shape into a bandana. Sew it triangle shape, leave one port to load ice into and tie it around your neck. And that that's going to last you the whole hundred, make two of those. So it's easier on your crew, right? So when you come in, you drop one, you grab a fresh one from your crew. And then you see them at the next one. They have the next one full. So so these are just like wee little tricks of the trade like really easy ways to make gear that'll just be highly beneficial to you on race day. Like I don't see why anyone wouldn't go through the aid station and have a nice bandana if it's 65 degrees plus. 65 degrees plus is kind of like my mark for when I would start to use topical cooling. And and I think that unless you feel like the topical cooling is going to put you into a potentially hypothermic state If there's a cooler section of the course coming up, why wouldn't you use it? As long as the, as long as the temperature is going to stay above 50 degrees on race day, if it started to peak into the sixties, you should start to use it because it's, it's your radiator. You wouldn't, you wouldn't run your car without, you know, radiator fluid. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think like, as it warms up too, maybe it's even more important because like, like I did a a long run last weekend or two weeks ago or whatever on this uh, marathon course I'm going to run. And it was only like high sixties, but not having been in those temperatures for the past couple months, I really felt it. And by the end I was like, okay, it's really warm. And I did even dunk myself a bit in the creeks on the way, like not like heavily, but it was just enough where like, it felt really good. Um, So now that we've kind of like talked about topical cooling, um, let's talk about like internal cooling. Cause you mentioned that when you go through aid stations, say like at States or whatever, like you have uh, volunteers fill your bottles with ice um, what what are the benefits then of internal cooling as opposed to just purely topical cooling?
1: Yeah, so once again, I mean, we this all comes back to us thinking about our core body temperature, right? Like, hey, what, we run at 98.6, right? We, we start to creep above that. Our body has to start doing work in order to bring our temperature like back down to that functional range that is healthy for our organs, right? So we go into a flight or fight Mode. If we go outside of the range at which which we are operational, because our body is thinking we're too hot, we're going to cause damage to our organs, right? (laughs) So it shuts down essentially other activity, right? (laughs) It shuts down digestion, it shuts down, but body, I want to keep running at this pace. No, like we're taking care of our organs, right? So the same that we're talking about it with uh thermoregulation and topical cooling, like internal regulation is just another side of it. So drinking cool fluid is, is another way to essentially like thermoregulate from within, right? Like we, we don't want to be drinking like super warm water, you know, or, or hot beverages in a hundred because our body has to work in order to bring those liquids down to like essentially our body temperature. So, if you're drinking fluids like that are at your body temperature, your body's not having to do work to bring them down to body temperature. Right. I guess. (laughs) But if we're drinking cool fluids, it's having a same, the same like venous impact, but internally, does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: That definitely makes a lot of sense. And it just reminded me, I don't know why, this is like years ago. I lived in Mexico and we go visit some people at their homes and it's like, there's no air conditioning. It's like Northern Mexico. So basically Sonoran, Chihuahua desert. And it's a hundred plus degrees in these concrete houses and people would give you soup for lunch. And it's like, okay, I'm already sweating. And it's like, now I'm having chicken soup or whatever. And it's a thousand degrees. And so it's like this is like double whammy of like, you're just already sweating and then drinking a hot liquid. And you could just, you instantly just start like sweating even more and more and more and it's kind of ridiculous and was just really easy to see how like even like your like your brain just like can't even focus when it's that hot like you just you just don't think clearly and i don't know so i imagine there's a lot of uh negative repercussions
1: to overheating like that well sure just think about like how how much of a hole you can get out of just having like a little coca-cola on ice in the middle of a race right like Mm -hmm. i mean we're just like let's say we're doing me and you like we're doing an adventure like Fifty miles point to point, and we're in Chamonix and there's a little waypoint, and oh man, we can get little, we can get sodas in there, cool sodas, like just you, you know the feeling, like being a kid, right, and just having a cool beverage and the positive impact it has on you, and a big part of that is just thermoregulation, like we're just talking about internal thermoregulation, like if a volunteer says, "Do you want ice?" Well, yeah, of course, (laughs) I want (laughs) ice. I want ice in the bottle that isn't my sports drink, right. And, and that bottle is essentially for like cleansing the palate, keeping the mouth feeling nice and cool and a little bit of like internal thermoregulation, but in the sports drink, I don't want to really screw with my proportions at which it's mixed. Right. So like, I won't, I won't necessarily put, um, ice on top of my mixture in my sports drink. Like that's the one thing, like I I don't particularly put ice in it, Derek, because Hey, look 21 ounces. I want to know that I'm getting 250 calories in it. Right. Every 45 minutes. Plus the other foods I'm going to eat at the aid station that hour, right? Whatever. We're not talking nutrition today, but I won't mix ice in the sports drink because I want to make sure that mixture is like on point for the number of calories I expect to get out of it. But the other bottle, right? Like if we're talking about running with handhelds, that other bottle essentially in an event like javelina, I'm using that for topical cooling, but I'm also using that for internal cooling as well. And kind of cleansing the palate of like the sugary substances I'm putting into my system. Right. So I'm a goo athlete, right? So like I'm, I'm using all goo rock team product, but it does feel really good once an hour, right. For maybe the last 15 minutes of the hour to cleanse the mouth with some water to just kind of like reset the palate so that you don't have that like dry or sugary taste in the mouth. And maybe that, that last part of the hour, like thinking of that as your opportunity to yeah. Do some internal cooling.
0: Interesting. Like I'm, I try to be very like, I like I'm a very heavy sweater. So I'm like, okay, like proper amount of sodium intake on runs and stuff. But I honestly had never thought about how much ice could displace like your fluid and electrolyte ratio. So i I've always just put ice in my, um, my drink mix bottles, but that, that makes a lot of sense. So I'd do it that way. Cause you don't want your levels to get off and, and also cleansing the palate. So important too, for like, uh, palate fatigue.
1: Yeah. For palate fatigue, for sure. But I, I do think that, yes, it's nice to have the sports drink on ice, But it's especially nice to know I'm actually getting the number of calories per hour I expected, right? Now, if you're doing the mixture, no problem. But that's part of the problem with um, aid stations in general. I think like as you go throughout the day, you're like, I'm trying to keep the sports drink cool, but you're not thinking about that part of the equation, right? So like maybe you're mixing it at the right rate, but you're putting in ice on top of the mixture. And over time... That 250 calories per hour becomes 175, 150, 125. And I think that's for us as runners, like how we notice by the end of the day, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but like you'll get to the end of the day and you'll be like, that doesn't taste much like sports drink anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and and the same goes real time for us, right? If we're out on training runs, like every time we mix, the, the bottle may not actually yield us 250 calories because part of it may have been ice or, you know, we we maybe filled up the bottle but it had this much ice in it and we filled up from our mixture but it only yielded 175 not 250 because of the volume of the ice so and, so that side of it's interesting right
0: yeah totally like and long term race repercussions of that too like if you start out oh, proper yeah. calorie and sodium ratio and then slowly you're losing more and more and more throughout the day it's hotter and then say sure. you do stop at an aid station without crew and they just have some like poorly mixed drink that you're using whether sure. Even if it is roctane, for example, that you'd be using, but they just don't yeah. mix it properly. It's like, well, how many calories am I getting out of this? Like how much sodium is in this? You don't really have any idea. So I guess sure. trying to mitigate that as early as possible, that can kind of help like with the fluctuations and stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All this mitigation is helping us with the, with the thermoregulation process. So we're tying, we're trying to tie all this in too, right? Like yeah. having the right number of calories per hour, the thermoregulation is not valuable if we don't. Right, running at the right perceived exertion, the thermoregulation is not valuable if we don't. We're already we're establishing that like those two parts of the triad, we're going to do them. We're going to eat the right number of calories per hour for us, for our body. What what we we've experimented with and what is required, and the same with the pace or the perceived exertion. If we do those two things right, what we're talking about today could only enhance how the day could go for you.
0: Yeah, 100%. So like speaking of calories and like food and stuff, then. I think caffeine um, is something I definitely want to talk about, but also just like the thermogenic effect of food. It's very minimal, but it's still there. But then also, as far as I understand, like carbohydrates increase absorption of fluid and electrolytes and stuff. So um, maybe we just start this little section talking about caffeine. Um, I feel like everybody has caffeine on runs, especially ultras and stuff. It's super popular to just have a ton of caffeine, whether it's like in drink mixes or coffee or whatever. But like, what could be some of the negative repercussions of consuming caffeine on say like a hot weather run if you're, especially if you're not used to it?
1: Yeah. So once again, um, this is going to essentially increase work for the body, right? Like the impact of caffeine can be fantastic. And look, I love it. Right. Like, yeah, I, I probably do a little too much of it. Um, but on race day, I do try to be very mindful and control it because the thermogenic effect, um, could result in a higher heart rate which could result in um you know the body working harder which could result in a uh, higher core body temperature essentially right we're we're talking about that thermogenic effect from the caffeine um establishing uh, establishing that the body is working at a harder rate than it actually is right so so if the, the heart rate's higher the um your capacity for work like goes is it, it's not being just dis- it's being displaced in such a way that like it's an enhanced heart rate essentially buddy. Right. And I, and I think that the heart rate being higher, it's taking away from our ability to um run at The, the, the proper, the proper heart rate that is, is going to get us wire to wire. So.
0: Yeah. So then, yeah, I guess like, for example, then like, th- see- this
1: kind of a gray area. Cause like yeah. the caffeine can, the caffeine can really help us, but we don't want it. We don't want it to over enhance our heart rate. And, and that could be a problem on race day, right? Like if, if all, if we're running at 140 beats a minute, right. And we know all day long, I can run at 140 beats a minute for the hundred mile distance. That's about what I'm comfortable at. And we spike caffeine and all of a sudden we're at 155. breathing rate goes up, right? We're, we're running at a higher heart rate. Capacity for work goes, goes, goes down because we're, we're trying to, kind of control that heart rate so all of a sudden um that could have that general thermogenic effect
0: yeah and it's also caffeine is like a slight diuretic right
1: yeah so the the other side of it is i mean especially if you're not used to caffeine on a semi-regular basis um not only a diuretic but you could have some some digestive problems from too much caffeine um we definitely see this where like you kind of have some IBS effects from like overload of caffeine on a regular basis, um, in ultras. And I think we all, you know, somewhat all of us like see some of the effect of that, like later in the ultra from just absurd amounts of the same food, but also absurd amounts of caffeine, like in the system. Right. So as as like a hot weather race, as it cools off as well, this diuretic effect you're talking about, we also notice towards the end of an ultra sometimes that like you may urinate way more often than necessary, like later in the run because of the caffeine too. And that could be essentially another negative impact from it. Yeah. At
0: least you could be losing a lot more fluid and lose more sodium and stuff that way as well. Right. Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're, if we're urinating on a regular basis, like more so than, um, we would without the caffeine, then we're essentially like bleeding some nutrients that, that we don't necessarily, um, want to be bleeding, like later in the race, whether it was electrolytes, um, or, uh, BCAAs like bridge chain amino acids. Um, I mean, we can definitely be bleeding nutrients that we want to be keeping in our system.
0: Yeah, so how much do you, or maybe even just from personal experience, if you don't know any like science about it, but like, how do carbohydrates affect um, like thermoregulation, but then also like your hydration levels, and or do you change your diet or your race day nutrition based off temperature?
1: Um, I mean, I definitely change my rate. I'll I'll answer that side of it. I guess like I definitely change my race day nutrition. Um based off the temperature in terms of like the medium of calorie I'm using throughout the day, I, I can't particularly answer the carbohydrate side of the question necessarily uh, or, or at least well, so like maybe I'll just step away from the carbohydrates <laughs> side of it. But in terms of like how the temperature fluctuates throughout the day, this is one thing that I have played with a lot um, in terms of medium of calorie throughout the day. So, so let's say we're, we're talking in an event like Western States where it's cool in the morning you're going to be in the high country uh, and it's going to be warmer as you dip out of the high country. It's going to be super hot in the middle of the day, right? And it's going to cool off again at night towards the end. And and we're taught, I'm talking from the perspective of a 16 hour finish, but we could, we could extrapolate it and extend it and say, you're essentially going to have the same conditions you would at the beginning as the middle of the night towards the end. Okay. I would play with the medium of calorie, like, where where the calories were coming from as we went throughout the day. So in the high country, I would be more on like a water and stroop waffle plan or solid foods. So maybe your solid food of choice is like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or um you know stroop waffle cracker um you know maybe some like nut butter placed in with that. I would eat those type of foods like early in the day in the cooler weather because the more viscous the type of food the more energy it's going to take for your gut to break down, right? So in the early parts of the day, I would eat the most solid foods because I know my body has the capacity to break that down early in the run. It's also most of the hiking I'm going to be doing in the day. So the perceived exertion is about at its lowest as well in the high country. So coolest weather, lowest perceived exertion, lots of hiking. I'm going to eat solid foods so that I don't tire myself out of my primary food source, which is essentially what I'm going to use all the way from, um, mile 23 light, right? Like all the way through dusty corners, all the way to the base of devil's thumb, all the way into Michigan bluff, all the way out of volcano Canyon, the hottest part of the day there, I'm going to be using the least viscous fluid meaning, or the v- least viscous type of calorie, meaning rock energy, sports drink, um, branched chain amino acid capsules, and like maybe uh, watermelon as my primary, like whole food source. So it's going to take the least amount of energy for my gut to break down those foods because they're already in their liquid form. There's no like maceration that my gut needs to put those foods through in order to get the calories to my blood system, right? <laughs> to to essentially like the working muscle. So- And then I would go back to like other foods, like throughout the day, if I needed a break, right? Like there may be another section of the race towards the end where I'm like, wow, I'm really tired of sports drink and gels. I'm going to shift back to foods as it cools off again, that I feel like I can crunch on a little bit and actually chew some foods, right? Stroop waffles, potato chips, Pringles, like, you know, more solid fruits, like, uh, like banana, like something that is just giving me a break from that same type of food on a regular basis. So, I play without that, th- that throughout the day. Um, one thing we didn't talk about as well with caffeine is like one way that I'll use, one way that I'll try to mitigate the use of caffeine too often is I'll go like 100 calories from non caff 100 calories from non caff 100 calories from caffeinated throughout the hour. So I almost like spike the caffeine at the end of the hour and go back to the uncaffeinated foods and then back to a spike in caffeine. Or I'll go caffeinated hour of sports drink, uncaffeinated hour, back and forth. So as I'm playing with the medium of different calories throughout a run, I'll also play with like, is the food caffeinated (laughs) as well?
0: That's a very good point. And like speaking of caffeine with food and like fluid and everything, do you change your salt or fluid intake based off of like, say you took a gel with caffeine, like, and there's that mild diuretic effect from it. Do you like pop a salt tab with it, or you just kind of roll with the, the punches at that point?
1: My insurance program, even though like, even though like Roctane, sports strength products, like you probably don't need any electrolyte capsules with, right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't essentially need a Roctane electrolyte capsule with the Roctane product each hour. Um, I will take one for insurance and that's my usual hourly insurance program. I take like four or five branched chain amino acid capsules made by goo and then one electrolyte capsule per hour. So I'm taking like six tabs per hour, like the BCAAs for kind of that muscle recovery real time throughout the run. Um, And then the one electrolyte capsule just to make sure. If I was doing like four or five hours of caffeinated product in a row and I was noticing uh, I'm I'm like peeing more often than I want to, I might up that to two capsules. But you want to be very careful like when you get into the realm of like too much or not enough electrolyte, right? From from sources like fuel electrolyte or salt stick, whatever it may be, whatever you may be taking, you you want to be careful that you you don't go the other way. You know, like I, I've heard Hayden Hawks talk about this where it took him a while to dial it. Like like he went the other way for a while where he was like, whoa, I was doing way too much salt and, it, you know, kind of screwed me up in a few races. And now that we have it, we've got really precise and dialed it. I think it's really a matter of dialing and training what's right for you, right? So if you're finding that, hey, you can grind, you know, caffeinated products, wire to wire. I know runners like that, that just go all day, no problem. But I would just advise, like, put yourself on a bit of a roller coaster where you play with, I don't need it right now. I don't need it right now. I think I could use it. When you start to think you could use it, yeah, give yourself a gel with caffeine, caffeine or give yourself one third of every hour with caffeine, so. Yeah, I think it's
0: really interesting, like, just genetically, I guess, and metabolically, how different people can be. Like maybe like you could do more caffeine than so and so, and and even carbohydrate intake too. Like some people can do like ninety grams an hour, others can only do sixty grams an hour. This is it's pretty fascinating, I guess, how differently bodies can metabolize, like whether it's caffeine or any sort of uh, food intake.
1: Yeah, I mean, w- we also have to think about different body types, right? Like Derek, you're a lot taller than me, you know, and we don't need to talk body weight, but like for every <laughs> pound of body weight and that, that you have, you know, at, at a different height than me as well. Biomechanically, we move differently and biome and metabolically, you maybe require a little more at, if you're, you know, one six X and I'm one five X pounds. Right. So we, we have to think about that as well. Like what is the body type? Well, well, she can only eat 64 grams of carbs an hour. That's about what she's comfortable with. Well, she's also five foot one and 112 pounds. Right. Whereas yes, of course he can eat 90. He's, he's six foot three and and 178 pounds, right? It, it, there's a, there's a difference, right? So different body types are going to work at different rates, you know, the, in terms of the number of calories they need per hour to, to get from wire to wire. Yeah, that's
0: interesting. Cause it makes me think of like how many variables there are as far as like heat dissipation. Like if you're tall and lanky, you're probably going to dissipate heat with, like a lot better than someone who's a little like shorter and stouter even if you are the same body weight or even like skin color, I'm assuming has a difference in that and like genetics and all these different things. It's like, it's just really fascinating. So it really comes down to like practice and train. Like you were saying early on, like if you're going to use topical cooling, like starting it on race day at Western States is probably not like the best idea. Cause you're going to, you're going to
1: feel clunky probably. And like, like a fish out of water almost. Sure. Your apparatus may not be broken in your arm sleeves. Oh, I should have want to size up on these, right? Mm-hmm. Your ice bandana. I don't like the material I made this out of, <laughs> right? Your, yeah. your your hat, you're like, oh man, I, I busted the hat. Why, like, you haven't practiced with it much, right? Like you, you didn't know how to properly use it. Like anything else, the more you experiment in training with these different apparatuses, we talked a little nutrition, the more you experiment in training, to a degree with the nutrition, you know, you don't want to be pumping sugar in to your bloodstream, you know, seven days a week necessarily with, with these products, but experimenting with them on your easy mid range, long slash, you know, long runs, like, you know, if they're 48 hours of placement or 72 hours of placement between them, maybe, maybe play with the nutrition on that day, play with the nutrition on your long and your mid long day, play with the nutrition on your quality day. How, how well do I run at 50 K (laughs) effort? I have a 50 K coming up on my tempo this week using my nutrition. I I think more people should practice that. You know I mean? There, there was a while, like early on when I was cutting my teeth in ultra running where, man, I was, I was practicing four or five days a week with the nutrition products. Right. And I think it helped me to dial things into where, how did you know you needed 375 calories per hour and could stomach that? Well, I I did it five days a week for six months. I don't know. I mean, it worked then, you know, it worked throughout the whole training process. Like how many days a week, five days a week, you know, I mean, I mean, I really honed my craft early on, you know, maybe 2016 through 18 there, Derek, and of like making sure I knew what I needed per hour, because I think what I eat per hour is pretty high for my body size and my body type, you know, eating about 400 calories per hour is a lot. And I comfortably ingest that. And I can tell when I'm around 250, it's not enough, you know, and my capacity for work and the run goes down. So yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's all individual based though. I mean, there's, there's a ton of science behind it. And look, I'm not a doctorate level physiologist, right? I'm not, I'm not Dr. Jason Coop, like, you know, but I ha- I do feel like I have a lot of experience working with different athletes, different backgrounds and, um, the ability to um, filter information is important as well as like that type of that level of knowledge with the science as well. I think, you know, it may be more of a sample size. It might be more like N 10 or N 20 or N 30 from the number of people I work with. But it is the type of data that I think extrapolates to many different uh, population groups. And I think the more information like this, we have coming from lots of different sources, um, the more we will learn over time, <laughs> you know, these are just a few different experimentation processes that like I've, I've applied though over the years that I think worked really well. I mean, a lot of it was just kind of nose that the grindstone experimentation and one right. And then I turned it in n five and 10 and 20. And, and that's been um, that's been interesting to see, Oh, it worked. It worked with Lottie Zyler. Oh, it worked with Kaylee Demersian, right. Oh, it works for Nicole Manette or um, yeah. I, I mean, I think, step flipping, whatever. Like it's cool to see it work with athletes that I work with and see them do super well with adapting nutritional programs, adopting, um, topical fueling programs and to see them apply it to race day and say, yes, you got the most out of it. Right. 1402 for a hundred miles. Awesome. You know, (laughs) that feels really good. You know?
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And I think like as important as to like get your workouts in and your mileage and volume and everything, it's like practicing these other aspects of running are, are super important because like say if it were just like say a mile or 400 meters on a track, like yeah, that's yeah. not as big of an issue. But like when you're out there for 14 to 24, 30, 48 hours or something, it's like these factors can make or break a race. So like coming from your perspective, like you're saying, like, like practicing these things and knowing how many calories you can take, what type of calories take in, like it's just super important to, um, to practice that as much as it is to like practice your stride or, or whatever.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I mean, there are just so many different options on the market in terms of what you can fuel with, what you can wear. And you need to find what's right for you. What's within your budget, what's right for you, um, what you have to do. Everybody's trying to market something to you, right? But it's a matter of you experimenting to find, hey, what works? Because if it works on a regular basis within a training block of 12 to 24 weeks, it'll probably work on race day too. But if you don't practice it and you neglect it, or if you get to race day, like you said, and you do something totally different or something you've never done before, it may not work that well because you, you haven't trialed it regularly enough in training.
0: 100%. I think like, like you're saying, like use your long runs and workouts as a way to like test fueling strategies. Like I've been trying to do this as much as possible on my long runs and even like workouts. And like, I'm not a huge fan of gels, but like yesterday I was like, okay, I'm going to do this workout and have a gel and just see how my body reacts to it. And like, and I felt totally fine. And like, I don't know if like, like my microbiome and my gut has changed over the years or whatever, but like, I felt hundred percent awesome. Like the workout was solid, no gastro issues in the 10 miles. I was like, Oh, what what a great day. But this goes back to like, like you're saying, just like figuring things out what works for you. Cause like what works for Zach Bitter may not work for Killian or Jim or you or whatever, but then, and then vice versa as well. Um,
1: Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, that goes, that goes for everybody, everybody that runs ultras period. And like, mm-hmm. we're, we're not, we're not talking. Yeah. Hey, this is, this is specific to guys like Killian or Jim, uh, this, this very high level, this goes like from top to bottom in terms of, or left to right, all, in terms of all different athletes, all different backgrounds, like you need to experiment and find what works well.
0: Yeah. So this has me thinking about um, something that ribs, you know, uh, Tommy ribs told me one time, like, I remember what we were talking about, but I was living in Southern Utah at the time and it was like, it was pretty cold winter. And he was just telling me that like when it's cold out and he was living in Flagstaff at the time. So I feel like he knows cold weather a lot more than I do. And like, I just hate the cold in general, which is why I live where I do. Me too. <laughs> it sucks. Everything about it is miserable, but i um, kind of the opposite end of like pre-cooling was like pre-warming up for a run. So he was saying that like before he goes out and does a workout and it's like, Say below freezing temperatures outside. He'll take a hot shower to kind of heat his body up and kind of get things flowing as far as like blood and whatever. But uh, do you think there's any benefit of doing the opposite of that? Say it's, so you're going to go out and run and it's like 100 degrees out, you start your your workout late or you're just heat training, for example, like pre cooling your body, say with a cool shower or cool liquid. Do you think that would be a a benefit?
1: Yeah. So when I was coaching collegiately, like this, these type of apparatuses were becoming more and more prevalent. Um, like for example, Oro sports, they're a company. Um, I've tried a few of the child, a few of their products, um, on hot weather days, like before with pre-cooling, like you're talking about, meaning mm-hmm. putting a, uh, apparatus on your person for about 15 minutes before you actually go for your warm-up, like a vest that's loaded with different ice packets and modules of ice in different patterns in different locations. In some of the locations we were talking about along the spine earlier on the chest to get your core t- body temperature as low as possible. I don't see how it could have an inverse reaction, right? Because once again, this all goes back to what is your core body temperature? <laughs> you know, will it allow you to digest food and send energy to working muscle? Right? So I think that, uh, the, some of the cooling apparatuses available are, are are really awesome. Like when I ran 2016 Olympic trials, I remember, yeah, Galen reps doing his strides in a, in a cooling vest, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, and, and yeah, you know, not praising Galen or, you know, not one way or the other, not saying anything one way or the other on this particular athlete, but high level athletes, even in 2016, right. were using these type of like pre-run cooling apparatuses. So I don't see why there would be a disadvantage to using them. From a scientific standpoint, from a data standpoint, have we done any studies on them? I don't know, man. I, I don't, you know, I read science fiction and fantasy. I don't I don't read a lot <laughs> of uh, scientific literature, to be honest with you. You know, I when I'm not running, when I'm not coaching, like I take a step away from it and I do my music or like, you know, I, I do I do other things, other interests. So um I don't have the data here, you know, much yeah. like much like with the, the caffeine topic. I you know, hey man, I don't know the, the current data here, but here's what caffeine does to your, your system yeah uh, I so right? from at, at the collegiate level that that have used them and and enjoyed those type of pre cooling
0: yeah uh, it seems like it would make sense like if you can even just cool your body say it's only like five to ten minutes um of like a less r p e then mm-hmm. it's probably gonna have a a net benefit over the race, even if it is like a minute perspective or a minute amount, but
1: yeah, quarter of a degree, half a degree, full degree, sure like start the race at uh 97.4, not a 98.6. Hey, yeah. I don't, I don't see why it wouldn't help in a 1500, right. In a four minute race could be a big advantage. Right. So yeah, I think, I I think using that type of uh, apparatus is, is just the same as real time in an ultra, you know, like, I I don't know if I'd particularly see a benefit of, of doing it a heavily in a hundred, like it's a, it's a 13 hour day. Like it may help might help me for 10 minutes, I think apparatuses like that may help Olympic level athletes more than us for a one minute to 12 minute event, right? What, what like a one minute to 10 minute event, whether it was the women's three k steeple down to the 400, I could see that being a huge advantage. Like if that could, if that could be a significant advantage for them for 10%, even of their race, that could be the edge they need on the competition. I'm not so sure it would matter that much for a hundred mile race. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess too, if you think about like, I know we always
0: default to Western States as an example, but like it's cool enough in the morning too, where it's like, why would you want to start your race shivering when sure. you could just start at a normal temperature? <laughs>
1: sure. Same and heavily in heavily hundred really. I mean, it's cool enough in the morning and yeah. cool enough in the evening to where, is it going to be that much of an advantage? I, I don't think it's going to be an advantage for enough percentage wise of our race for, for me to necessarily buy in.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and just kind of, the last kind of talking point here um like where i live i think we live in different types of heat environments i should say i'm gonna start this out differently like Mm -hmm. like where i live it's generally hot and dry we do get monsoon storms where it's humid but it's like it's humid for 15 minutes maybe or whatever but where you live in, in georgia it's hot and humid pretty consistently right oh yeah yeah so how does in your view like how does the humidity affect cooling because obviously sweat is how humans like cool off and whatever but if they're already in a very humid environment like does that change how you, how your body regulates heat?
1: Yeah. So the evaporation rate being a lot higher, for example, when I come race in Arizona, I notice that like, I'm doing a lot more topical cooling there to have the same effect that I would have here. Like the sweat layer on my skin is almost omnipresent and always present here in Savannah. Right. Because Mm -hmm. the humidity is, 90 to 100% humidity or like 85, 80 to 80 to 95 usually is like the actual humidity range, probably on average that we have here. So I'm never dry. So you don't have the evaporation rate. The evaporation rate isn't as active. So you're not, let me think about this. Yeah, So if the evaporation rate, (laughs) thinking through this, Derek, isn't (laughs) as active, we're not having the cooling effect, right? Like you, you become cool from fluid, liquid evaporating off of your body, the evaporation rate, not being as high here. Like you definitely feel like you're in these sticky pockets more often because there's really like nowhere in the air (laughs) at 95% humidity for the fluid on your body to go. So I don't feel the same effect essentially from like pouring fluid on my person that I would in Arizona, like you pour f- cool fluid on your person, the warmer fluid evaporates off the body. Right. Um, so, so here I don't particularly use the cooling apparatuses quite as much, maybe because of that. Um, I don't, I don't feel like they have the the same impact. Like I I've heard of runners in the Southeast kind of say, like, I feel like, uh, like cooling apparatus is like, I, they're very suffocating for me here. And I understand that because the humidity can be quite suffocating. But I think the other side of it is like the perceived exertion and the effort needs to be lower here because of that combination of high humidity and high heat. The combo is kind of nasty for us where it feels like in the heat of the summer here, I feel like I'm in Flagstaff, right? Like my pace per mile is about a minute slower per mile. So like, let's say in the winter, if I'm like comfortably running 630 pace per mile versus in the summer. The the same perceived exertion is going to put me closer to like 715 to 745, depending on how nasty the day is. Like it's just a huge difference, Derek. It almost feels like elevation. It's a it's a limiting factor, right? The evaporation rate's not very high. You don't get the same cooling effect. The humid, and I think that's why a lot of runners have problems with the humidity. When the evaporation rate's high, yeah, going out west is awesome because I just pour mm-hmm. pour water on person. I keep an ice bandana on. As long as I can stay wet. I never feel hot in hundred degrees. It's interesting. Like I can't tell you that I've ever felt really, really hot at Javelina because I feel like as long. Up cooling, I never get hot. I never get hot there. Like a 95 degree day at Javelina feels almost like a 75 degree day here in Savannah. And maybe the humidity is the the big aspect there where the evaporation rate is just so low. So we we don't get the cooling effect.
0: Yeah, maybe that's super interesting because I always feel like, because like living out here, it's like, oh, yeah, it's warm at Havilena, but then you see people come down from like Montana and they're just like destroyed because it's so warm destroyed. for them. But it's just like just because they've been living in like 30 degree temperatures and that 75, 80, 90 sometimes temps, like it's different. Yeah, but
1: like it is different. Yeah. It, I'd be, I'd be curious, like what would an East Coaster, you know, from kind of like the more New York, New England area, how would, how would they fare at Javelina, right? If they could do the proper heat training and like use the heat apparatus, um, humidity high is high on the whole coast over here. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, how would they fare at the event compared to like someone in Montana, if we move directly across the country, essentially uh-huh. like, would they fare better if they use the, the apparatus compared to the person from Montana? Cause the person from Montana is already used to the, um, you know, the lower humidity. So I don't know that the, there's so many factors to like how, yeah. how well, how well is your fueling plan slash your cooling plan going to work on race day? You know, where are you from? What are you exposed to? You know, we, we broke down some of them today though.
0: Yeah. It'd be interesting to look at results data from years past, say like a Catalina or States or something and. And like see on average, like how people did from Maine or from Montana or Wyoming or something. And then also from the South and then from the Southwest. It's sure. like, I don't know,
1: It'd just be fascinating to look at if you could compile all that into
0: some sort of like visual chart.
1: Yeah. Like I, I almost feel like I'm tapering when I come over, right? Like, I, I guess I almost feel like I'm coming down from elevation. Like when I go to haveline I'm like, cool. feels like I'm coming down from elevation. Like I got through <laughs> the worst weather I possibly could have in preparation for this race. I felt like that. Almost every year, maybe not this past one, in terms of the the net output of the result, but the previous three, I felt like, wow, I'm super prepared, and and even this past year in 2022, I felt like from a weather perspective, I was super prepared for the day, you know, and it felt easier than than the weather at home, but I've always felt that way about the desert. I love coming and running in the desert, and it's it's wonderful if you know if you know where the red line is, and you know the external cooling. Um, accommodations necessary and how to use them. I think it's a great course for almost anyone to come and, you know, have their best day, but, but it takes the, it takes the practice and piecing all those elements together.
0: Yeah. I wonder if like, say somebody from Phoenix is, re- that's going to run Javelina. I wonder if they could like artificially create a really humid environment with the same temperatures we have down here. And I wonder how that would play out at Havelina, for example, because like you have that, that variable oh, yeah. of like adding all this humidity with high heat, but then taking it away, like right before Javelina. So kind of like what you're saying where you're like, you're training in humidity, but then when you take the humidity away, like you feel like it's a lot easier. So I wonder if they'd have that right. same, like, I don't know, that same benefit.
1: Yeah. You've got to, you've got to find some, some local gardeners in the area, you know, with, with greenhouse access, man. And they can uh, <laughs> put a mill in the greenhouse and play with the right percent grade on that mill, you know, plus 3%, negative three all suited up, you know, in a windsuit or something, like that. you know, how would, how would they feel yeah. heading to Havelina if they did that a couple of days a week? It's yeah. I mean, Hey man, there's the sport's so young and we have so much unexplored territory, you know, both from a experimental standpoint and a scientific standpoint, you know? Yeah.
0: It's going to be interesting to see where like, just specifically like heat training, how it evolves over the years, like say the next 10 sure. years, like how thing, how are things going to change? Like with new science and new data and also just yeah. new, like you're saying, like, these new personal experiences are like your coaching experiences and stuff, for
1: example. Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I've definitely heard a lot of perspectives saying the more old school methods of heat training aren't practical or, or don't make as much sense as a sauna or a hot tub. What if you don't have access to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And what if it's just more effective and easier for you to put on that six puffy the way that Ian does and, and, he's made it work you know and a lot of athletes like like charman have have used these methods tried and true over the years where hey ian's ian's the guy with seven puffies on you know going up and down uh you know mount diablo and he goes to western states and nails it and he's top 10 again and he's top 10 again and he's top 10 again so like there is to me data even if it's a smaller n, one two three four five ten whatever that suggests like there's something to those methods as well. We should, we should never discount a method for, for what is, um, what can be helpful to heat training. And it could be just, it could be as much psychological as anything else. Like hopping in this hot tub three times a week is going to really, really help me on race day. I think the data is probably still like, I, I don't think the, the sample size is big enough for us to discount any one way of doing it yet. Exposure. Good exposure too often bad. <laughs> exposure, <laughs> at, exposure at the wrong times, even worse, right? Could tire you out for the for the day that you could have. So I guess kind of like wrapping, you know, in general, some of my concepts is just like get a few heat, heat training apparatuses that like you think would be helpful for you. I mean, the top in, topical cooling apparatuses, right? The white sun shield slash arm sleeves, the white, you know, leg shield kind of arm sleeves. Like I, I wear the compressed sport leggings that I, I really love that you can keep those two areas, keeping those nice and cool. You get some nice venous cooling, having a classic ice bandana around your neck. You can make your own practice with that insulate it with something like a chamois material and get something like a nice hat or even a tall trucker hat that you can put ice in and see how you like those four products and how they interrelate to each other. The coverage can be a huge advantage, you know, having a little bit of that UV protectant layer, not having to apply as much sunscreen as well. Um, but also being protected from the sun, as long as the cloth is white, can be uh, really advantageous. Um, experiment around and and try new things. That's that's my best advice for someone that's trying to get, you know, into the the topical cooling realm of how it can enhance their performance.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree. I think that's some great advice. Is to take all the data and like I don't know people's experiences and apply them to yourself. See what works, see what doesn't, and and go from there. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for taking the time, Patrick. Appreciate it. Yeah. Good thanks, chatting. Derek.
1: It was really fun. And, uh, I hope everyone can take a little bit of data from this and extrapolate it to their situation.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so where can people find you and like, what's your coaching website and all that?
1: Yeah. So you can find me and my coaching team, um, at Patrick Reagan backslash coaching, uh, there you can book consultations with, uh, and monthly coaching with myself, um, Nicole Manette, who's one of, My coworkers and uh, Randy Taylor, the three of us, uh, have all have availability right now. So we're, we're all available for coaching services. And then my, uh, my Instagram, my personal is at Patrick Reagan running and our, our coaching team's Instagram is at the ultra wizard Ramble.
0: Where'd that name come from?
1: Hey man, I'm, you know, I'm the ultra wizard. I like (laughs) sci-fi and fantasy and I love I it. I like to ramble around the country and run these races. Yeah.
0: It's a very appropriate name, man. I love it. Yeah. Well,
1: perfect. perfect.
0: <laughs> awesome. That was good to catch up and I will talk to you soon. All right, man. Take care. Yeah. Have a good one.